Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their rewards in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be hurt because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil ones. For if you forgive other peoples when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sum up the law and the prophets. Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 11. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all have human fathers who discipline us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirit and live? They discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplined us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Thanks, Minley. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this prayer that we have been taught by your Son to pray. So we ask that as we meditate on it and reflect on it, that it might shape us and shape us more in the image of him who is our saviour. Amen. Well, can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you were given as you came in. If you open up on the inside, you'll see, as usual, a pretty detailed outline uh, for you to be able to follow along in this talk. There's some Bible passages, there's a blank for you to fill in, so you'll need to have a pen handy for that. And if we don't run out of time, at the very end there's a discussion question that I'll get you to share with the person next to you. 
Well, could the Lord's Prayer be the most famous prayer ever? It's one of the first prayers that we teach a new believer. It's one of those few prayers that Christians from every background can say together. It's still prayed at the start of each sitting day in both state and federal parliament. But what did Jesus mean when he said, in Matthew 6 verse 9, there on your handout, this then is how you should pray? Was he saying that this is the only way you should pray, as if all you need to do is learn it off by heart so that we can recite it by rote, kind of like a ritualistic chant or a mantra? Now let me say that one of the wonderful gifts of the Lord's Prayer is that when you don't know what to pray, because it's too hard to work out what you should be praying, uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer through slowly can be deeply comforting and reassuring and calming. And yet at the same time, the Lord's Prayer cannot be the only way that we should pray. It cannot be the sum total of our prayers, uh, if for no other reason than that the Bible is full of many other great prayers. I take, for example, Paul's prayers that we looked at in Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, chapter 3, you remember those memory verses? Uh, chapter 3, pray that we, might have, that we might be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Or think, if you will, of the dying thief on the cross. He didn't pray the Lord's Prayer. I suppose he had no time to learn it. And of course, Jesus, in his hour of greatest need in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son of God doesn't pray this prayer either. So what I think Jesus is doing when he teaches us to pray is that he's giving us a model for all of our prayers. And that means, I think, that we will benefit enormously if we take our time to reflect on it and to slowly tease it apart. And what we're going to do in the weeks leading to Christmas is just make our way through line by line to see how Jesus shapes our prayers, how Jesus shapes the way in which we think about our God. Each week, I'm just going to suggest a big idea and then offer a few brief implications. So today, of course, our Father in heaven, uh, point one there on your handout, the big idea, your picture of God determines how you pray. Your picture of God determines how you pray. So I wonder, what's your picture of God? What's your picture of God? Because all of us have one that springs to mind. Have a look at the slide on screen behind me. Maybe your picture of God is that he's like a genie in a bottle. Someone you call on when you're in desperate need of help. Or maybe your picture of God is that he is like a judge. Someone before whom you cower when you're feeling guilty or whom you appeal to when you long for justice to be done. Or maybe your picture of God is that, like the picture of the cloud there, God is he's just some supernatural deity, some kind of transcendental spirituality with whom you connect when you need relief and calm in our stressed-out world. What's your picture of God? Well, the Lord's Prayer begins with Jesus giving us perhaps the most fundamental description of what God is like. So, point two on your handout, according to Jesus, God is our Father. According to Jesus, God is our Father. Now, Matthew 6 verse 9, it begins with our Father in heaven. Uh, in fact, 
In Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer is located within the Sermon on the Mount. So you might say the most famous prayer in history in the most famous sermon ever given. And in just three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God Father 18 times. 18 times in three chapters. Kind of hard to miss the point, isn't it? He'll go on in Matthew 19, printed there on your handout. Matthew 19, uh, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's a powerful way of describing God as being a father who welcomes us. And we saw, of course, back in our Ephesians series, chapter 1, verse 4, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. According to Jesus, God is our father. Now, the Bible actually describes God in many wonderful ways. The Bible says that he is perfect and righteous and good. The Bible says that God is our maker and sustainer, our redeemer and our friend. It says that he is our consolation and hope, our refuge and strength. It says that he knows us intimately, all our weaknesses, all our failings. He sees the depths of our hearts and he loves us the same. And they're all great reasons to pray, but according to Jesus, Jesus specifically addresses him as our Father. This is a mind-blowing privilege. This is unique to Christianity amongst all the world religions. Jesus is saying God is not some impersonal force. How could you ever relate to that? He's not just the almighty creator which is good, but hardly personal. Jesus says God is our Father. The Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen, who rules in splendour and dwells in unapproachable light, we get to call that God Dad. Now, I realise that calling God Father can actually be very difficult for some of us when we think about our own father or perhaps our own parenting. It can be unsettling, even deeply painful. For what it's worth, imperfect and inadequate fathers are nothing new and Jesus certainly knew their limitations. That was the point of the second reading uh, that Menley brought to us. Look there at Matthew 7, printed on your handout. Jesus asks... Rhetorically, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus' point, I think, is that no matter how much your Father might have let you down, you know what he should have been like. And no matter how bad or even good your father was, this father, he is better. I've given you a quote there from a book. uh, It's written by a good friend of mine, a guy in ministry in Sydney. Uh, Here's what he says, Paul Grimmond. If we've had a sin-stained relationship with a difficult, distant or abusive father, we find it difficult to grasp what the Bible is saying about God when it calls him our father. The problem is that we're working in the wrong direction. We think that God is like our fathers. But the Bible says that our fathers 
at their best, are like God. So, for those of us who never knew our Father, or are estranged from them, or are just disappointed by them, we're being reminded that our Heavenly Father, He is patient and loving. He is gentle and comforting. He is safe and affirming. He is encouraging and protective. He is whatever adjective you want to insert in that sentence. And he is that in all the ways in which you wish your dad had been. And this is the one Jesus teaches us to pray to. Well, what does it look like in practice? Two implications, both of them are on your handout. The first one, bottom left-hand side. According to Jesus, God is our Father. So, point one, a good father doesn't always give you everything you ask for. A good father doesn't always give you everything you ask for. Instead of giving you everything you ask for, a good father gives you whatever is best for you. He gives you whatever is best for you because he's not some genie in a bottle patiently waiting for our summons so that he can grant us our every wish. In fact, if he did give us everything we asked for, you'd say that he indulged us or spoiled us because that's how we describe parents who can never say no to their children. That's the reason why sometimes our Heavenly Father withholds for later. Now, sometimes he doesn't give it at all. But he always knows what's best. And in what he decides, not too much, not too little, and never too late. For myself, all too often I've realised only with hindsight that I didn't know what was best for me at the time I was asking. How thankful I am that our Heavenly Father always does. Now, for the record, it is okay to ask our Heavenly Father for anything you want. To ask Him for a job or a relationship. To ask Him for a new house or for a sporting success. To ask Him for an exam result. Uh, at this time of year, uh, I always encourage our students to pray fervently that they would experience God's tender mercy, not his righteous justice. It's okay to ask for those things, provided you won't throw a tantrum if he gently replies, not this time, my darling boy, not this time, my lovely girl. It's not best for you. Uh, likewise, it's okay to cry out, please, Dad, don't make me do that. Don't make me suffer in sickness or endure the pain of loneliness or bear the agony of losing a loved one. It's okay to pray those prayers. All of us have prayed them. It's right that we do. Provided we also pray, but I know that you know best, so I'll leave it up to you. Best example of that in the Bible? It's from the perfect Son of our Heavenly Father. It's from Jesus, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. Printed there at the bottom of your hand on the left-hand side. Going a little farther, Matthew 26, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, if you'd like suggestions from Jesus about what to pray for specifically, what he recommends we ask our Heavenly Father for, well, this is a spoiler alert for the weeks ahead, he says to pray for daily bread, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from evil and temptation. All of which I think begs the question, is that what we are asking God for. Now, I'm not naive in all of this. I realise how hard it is whenever he doesn't give us what we've asked for. How are we meant to interpret his responses? How do we know that he's not given up on us? Well, that's the second implication on the top of the right-hand side of your handout. A good father shows his love for you by... And here's the blank for you to fill in. Now, it's, do you know what goes in the blank? It's not hard to work it out because in the next line. But, you know, my point is that most of us think a good father shows his love for you by blessing you. Not according to Hebrews. Come with me. We're in for a surprise. Hebrews 12 verse 7. Ensure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Hebrews 12 is offering a profound perspective on hardship. Saying that hardship actually, like parental discipline, is the mark of legitimacy. It's the thing that confirms we are children of God himself. Uh, most of you know that um, Wendy and I, you know, we have three children. They're now teenagers, young adults. But once upon a time, when they were little toddlers, we spent hours down at the local playground, uh, you know, playing on the swings and everything. The one thing I learned from all the hours I spent in a playground is that the one thing you never try to do is discipline someone else's rat bag child. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you don't. But I tell you the reason why I didn't. It's because I didn't care about them. They're not mine. Discipline is a mark of legitimacy, that you belong to our Father in heaven. And in fact, look at how it goes on, verse 9. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? We respected our parents. No, not at the time, of course, only ever in hindsight, even though they are imperfect. But how much more so the Father of Spirits, our Heavenly Father. And so, verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. Why? In order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Of course it doesn't. But still, it's for our good. In order that we may share in God's holiness, that we might reap a harvest of righteousness and peace 
for those who have been trained by it, not those who have not been. As I said, this is a confronting, it's a, com- it's a confronting but comforting way to interpret hardship. Hardship is a sign that we do belong to God, that He does care. Now, in fact, in Hebrews 12, the discipline that, Paul, that um, the writer is referring to is of struggling with sin to the point of shedding your blood. That's the hardship, struggling with sin to the point of shedding your blood. One reason why God doesn't just click his fingers and make us perfect in this fallen world is so that in our ongoing struggle with sin, we might know that we are his children, that God is still with us and for us and at work in us and through us, that he has not given up on us even when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. To put it slightly differently, if you never struggle with sin, it might be that you are no longer God's child. Because the world doesn't struggle with sin, our world rejoices in sin and celebrates it. Now, I realise that all of this can make God feel a little bit brutal, almost callous, So let me say, he so loved us that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There will always be mysteries to our Heavenly Father's parenting, and we'll never fully comprehend them. His timing, his methods, but we need never doubt his intention or the certainty of the outcome Because when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. And he has seated us in the heavenly realms and lavished on us every spiritual blessing. Now, in part, but soon enough, in full. Actually, Paul draws all this together with a lovely image of a child calling his father, not just dad, but daddy. Look at Galatians 4 verse 6. There on your handout, Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. Uh, When it says Abba, Father, uh, in the original language, uh, Abba, it's more intimate, more personal than just Dad. It's what we would loosely say, Daddy. That's how we get to call our Father in Heaven. Uh, It made me think this week of that odd moment when every adolescent child proposes that they should start calling their parents by their first name. Uh, I've always told my children that there are only three people in the whole world who who get to call me Dad or Daddy or, in the case of one of them, Father Dearest. Being an heir, verse 7, it confers both privilege now and the promise of so much more still to come. Well, uh, the big idea, your picture of God determines how you pray. 
According to Jesus, God is our Father. That was point two. Point three, according to Jesus, God is our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We've already alluded to this, but of course that's how the line begins in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. Uh, We saw that reference in Ephesians 1, actually, uh, of our Father who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Uh, I said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to our Father 18 times in just three chapters. Of those 18 times, 10 of them, he adds explicitly, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. What a wonderful reassurance. He is not just a good Father, he is a good Father who art in heaven. And that means that in heaven, he is above all this mess. He has a perspective. He can be trusted. When it says that our Father is in heaven, it's not saying that he's remote or removed. After all, every Christmas we're reminded that it's God incarnate who is teaching us to pray. And when it says that our Father is in heaven, it's not saying that he is aloof or unapproachable. Rather, it's assuring us that he is sovereign. He is in supreme control. He is over everything. Which I think is just the most blessed relief when I survey the chaos around us. We'll return to this intersection between heaven and earth in the weeks ahead as we make our way through the Lord's Prayer. So let me finish then. So what for us? So what for us? Uh, Earlier this year, I encouraged us as a church to read slowly through Jim Packer's Knowing God um, as a way of being shaped and encouraged in our understanding of what he is like. And I've been doing the same. And so recently I came across this profoundly insightful diagnostic question that he raises. Look at it with me. It's printed there on your handout. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. I thought I'd finish by sharing how the fatherhood of God in heaven changed me years ago and how it still shapes me today. Most people who get to know me would say that generally, generally I'm a reasonably relaxed person, not too stressed or anxious. But I wasn't always that way, particularly as an adolescent. Uh, Growing up, actually, I was, well... Let's put it like this, I was a slightly worried Asian kid under the burden of very high expectations and ambitions. Uh, My year 12 exams, as they loomed, they were a big deal for me at the time. And partly, to be fair, that was because of parents. But partly, it was self-imposed because I wanted to be a success. I'd become a Christian, actually, in junior high school. Uh, thanks to the faithful ministry of very patient Sunday school teachers. But I'm not actually sure that my conversion had significantly changed my outlook on life. That was until the day of the first of my final Year 12 exams. 
I still remember rocking up first thing in the morning, standing outside the exam room, and whilst I was standing there, another student gave me a piece of paper with a memory verse written on it. And so began my lifelong obsession with memory verses. The verse was printed there on your handout. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him, from 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I remember thinking as I stood outside this room, ready to go for the first of my final exams, what a relief. He cares for me. And he asked me to cast my burdens on him, knowing that he is the one from verse 6 who can lift me up because he is over all things. Today, that's why I keep coming to my heavenly father. Because I know that he loves me. And I know that from heaven he is in control. Which means that nothing I do, nothing I fail to do, can possibly thwart his plans and his purposes. It's meant, I think, that I've become less anxious over time. Not because I don't care, but because I know that he cares for me. And that's enough. It's liberated me, I think, from the terrible burden of constantly worrying about a future that I cannot see and I cannot control anyway. It's given the confidence to step forward in faith daily because my heavenly dad knows the end from the beginning and his name will be hallowed and his kingdom will come. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven.